And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am, streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. This is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast, and uh, I hope everybody had a good International Women's Day. Uh, We've got a few highlights from the uh, International Women's Day march that was a rollicking affair on Thursday night. Uh, 3CR did a live cross. Uh, I might play you some of the uh, speeches that happened after the live cross finished so that uh, you'll feel a complete... Uh, participant of the event. Uh, good turnout, lots of fun, uh, and uh, everybody was uh, uh, enlivened by the experience, I have to say. Uh, coming up today, we're going to go down, as I promised, to Martin Foley's office. Martin Foley is the Victorian minister who's uh, in charge of this uh, policy for uh, public housing renewal. Uh, groups of people went down to his office in Rouse Street in Port Melbourne and uh, voiced their opinion of this particular policy. So we'll hear from those people. Uh, we also will hear from uh, David Bradbury. Now, David Bradbury is a fantastic documentary filmmaker. If uh, you're around in the 80s and onwards, you will know that he was the man that brought us great films like No Passaran, which was a report on what was going on in Nicaragua at the time. Uh, fantastic ability to uh, get great... Uh, uh, voices from uh, from the street, people who, uh, what they're really feeling and what they're really doing. Uh, he, he's a great filmmaker. He uh, has a great eye for uh, the way things look, but also has a great uh, interest in what's actually going on. And he does it from a perspective that uh, is, uh, as a peace activist, a long-term peace activist, as well as a person who... Uh, uh, is has a progressive turn of mind, so we'll hear from David. He's got a his new film is uh, America and Me, and it's all about uh, his time spent in America leading up to the presidential election. Uh, fascinating stuff. There's going to be a screening of America and Me. I'll get it in quickly so that you don't forget. It's going to be on. At Nova on uh, next Friday, uh, March the 16th at 6.30, there's going to be a Q&A. Uh, really worth getting down there to have a look at this film. It's a really fascinating film. He's a great filmmaker and the stories are actually hugely compelling. Uh, we're going to hear from Kevin, of course, and uh, uh, plenty of other things if you stick around. But uh, before we go on, an important message. Are you doing the right thing? Marxism 18 is Australia's biggest radical left-wing conference, happening March 29th to April 1st in Melbourne. The conference will feature founding editor of Jacobin magazine, Bhaskar Sunkara, Australian writer Helen Razor, 
Palestinian activist Ruwaida Araf and films celebrating 50 years since the struggles of 1968. Join radicals and activists for political discussion in over 100 sessions across four days. Tickets start at $25 and are available at marxismconference.org. Red Flag Press is a 3CR supporter. I'm here at Martin Foley's electoral office down in Port Melbourne. Uh, the uh, public housing people have come out down here to protest about the uh, legislation that's being put forward. My name's Fiona and I'm with Friends of Public Housing Victoria and I'm here with my little five-year-old neighbour called Dougie and we're here to um, tell Martin Foley that it's an absolute disgrace. He's trying to wash his hands of all responsibility and I'm also very upset at the way public tenants are treated. Public tenants are, are deliberately kept in the dark they're deliberately not told the important... When you say that, give me an example of that. Well, for example, you know, public tenants have complained to us that Martin Foley's office have sent what they call relocation officers, knocking on their doors, putting pressure on them to sign relocation agreements and refusing to leave the actual documents behind so that the tenants can get a second opinion. Um, and what Martin Foley ha- is doing is promising that all tenants have a right to return, but we actually know that the document that they sign states quite clearly that they'll only be able to return if the bedroom sizes of the new units match their needs. And we already know that they're planning to demolish all the walk-ups and the three-bedroom units' uh, homes will be demolished and replaced by one or two. So it's it's... It's absolutely false for tenants to believe that they'll all be coming back, and yet that is the tactic that Labor is using to. I mean, a lot of people out there, yeah, and a lot of people out there would say, oh, you know, they've solved the problem of homelessness, and uh, because uh, they're going to, uh, it's all going to go to community housing. Why isn't that a solution? Well, it's not a solution at all because basically, um, what they're doing is a kind of social engineering so we know that community housing is not picking up the most desperate people because they're not viable for the market you see we're talking about businesses community housing businesses and so basically they're picking and choosing who they house and then what Labor's attempting to do is hand over some of the community housing and the funding for the church bodies to try and mop out what this, the social fallout will be. So um, basically, if you have, let's say, a disability, you can kiss the chances of ever having the dignity of your own little public housing flat and you'll be in boarding houses. Now, I think that is so wrong. And, you know, this, all these underpinnings of public housing, these really fine principles, they're all just going to be thrown out the window. Why should, why should people be in boarding houses and homeless and in transitional housing simply because the community housing sector is favouring people who earn more? Why is, why is public housing so important? Why is having well, a roof over your head so important? Well, it's, it's self-evident. Without a roof over our heads, we all start to unravel. It's, it's as simple as that. We all need, we all need food and shelter. That's the, the most basic human needs. And we all, 
you know, the, the, what they're doing is they're dismantling what is actually a fine system, public housing. And the amount of secrecy and, and kind of whitewashing and, and not telling tenants what they are, are losing if they sign away their rights as public tenants and enter into the community housing system. You know, the, the whole idea of the, the flexible rents that go up and down according to income. In community housing, that's... No, people get... I know people, they've been turfed out. Yeah, they get turfed out, that's right. So what an absolute disgrace. And the fact that nobody is speaking out against this, you know, so many politicians are being quiet about it and the churches are involved, you know, it makes our battle very difficult. But I'm happy to say that things are snowballing now and the truth is starting to come out. We need to defend public tenants and their rights and we need to fight to save public housing. Thanks very much for talking to me. And my name's Fiona Ross. I'm from Friends of Public Housing. So please visit us on Facebook. Thank you. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Roger Wilson. I'm a retired seafarer and I'm part of Hands Off Public Housing and Fair Go for Pensioners via the Maritime Union Veterans, which is our retiree group. As you know... As some of you probably know that both Hands Off Public Housing and Fair Go for Pensioners has been trying for almost a year now to get an audience with this, gr with this great Minister for Housing, member for Melbourne Ports, and for some odd reason the Minister doesn't wish to converse with us. I might add that prior to the last election, uh, which saw the defeat of the Liberal National Party Coalition and the election of the Andrews Labor government, we were able to see the aspiring Premier, Daniel Andrews, three or four times in the course of the election campaign and we were able to meet with all of the shadow ministers for health, for housing, for every, every which way, uh, whatever the government uh, is involved in, they were happy to see us. And we, some of us even helped on election day to give out their how-to-vote cards. We helped up and down the Frankston line with the electioneering and... Uh, after they be, lo and behold, after they're elected, they never want to meet with us. It's hard to understand. Uh, and I actually think, in a serious sense, that it's actually an abrogation of the democratic process and democratic principles. They are elected, supposedly, to represent the community in the parliament and provide all of the necessary services that the community needs uh, and in particular, public housing. The fact of the matter is that this plan by the government to build more units uh, is in fact going to lead to less public housing because the emphasis, as I understand it, is on single uh, one-bedroom and two-bedroom units. Now, I live in Kensington, which is adjacent to Flemington where there are there's a big high-rise uh, estate and in fact there are a couple of high-rises in my street 
And many of the families in those buildings, they've got not one or two children, some have got three or four and even more. So that uh, what's going to happen is that even if they build more units as a number, uh, the fact is that m many people will not be able to return to their estate because there won't be any apartments big enough for their family. So this is what's going on. And in my opinion, what it illustrates is that government, both at the state levels and at the federal level, are beginning a process of washing their hands of any responsibility for public housing in the interests of people who build these massive skyscrapers, in the interests of the developers. And the pr problem is that once you give away a public asset, you never get it back. And I was amazed to read in the paper today that Victoria is going to flog off its share of the Snowy Mountain scheme. Uh, well, this will make it possible for the people who are upstream stealing more water than they're entitled to. It'll make it easier for them to do it. And it will undermine another public asset. So... Uh, that's all I want to say. There are a number of people here who probably wish to say something. Five uh, thousand people, Victorians, who live in public housing in something like uh, four, uh, 64,000 plus uh, dwellings. What's going to happen when these new um, one and two bedroom places are built, there'll be less tenants because they're only one and two bedroom. This is the point that Jamie was making. And we say, Minister Foley, stop locking the doors on us. They have locked us out this morning. The police have said, confirmed that they have the right to do that, even though we're citizens, hello, and we're, we're you know, permanent residents. They've locked us out. He won't meet with us. Roger said that earlier. We have been trying. This is now fair go for pension and hands off public housing. They will not meet with us, and that is a disgrace. We are shame. really shame. Look, yeah, shame. shame, absolute shame. And what's really going on is that the greedy developers are going to get their hands on this really expensive land. We're talking about at the moment the inner city estates. It's Brunswick, it's Paran, it's Flemington, it's Clifton Hill. Hello? <laughs> and the land is worth a mozza. And this is really what's going on. And it doesn't give a rats about public housing tenants. And this is their homes. People have lived in these homes for up to 50 years. These are not dysfunctional communities. It is a disgrace. And Minister... Um, Foley promised before the last election, he said if the Labor government got in, they would protect public housing. We believed him. Hello, Foley, no promise now. He did not live up to the promise and it's a disgrace. Shame, we say, shame, come on out shame, and shame, talk to shame, us and shame, do something. Not only talk, act. An election's coming up. People, you know where to put your vote. And it's certainly not the rusted-on Labor voters. He's let them down. And the public tenants 
are nothing but a bag of anxiety at the moment. You know, they don't know where they're going. They don't know when they're going to be re relocated. They don't know when they're coming back. Can you imagine? Someone comes and knocks on your door and says, out you go. Oh, oops, no, I don't know where you're going. Oh, no, no idea how long for. Oh, oh, the children are in school, are they? Oh, oops, well, I'll have to find another school. Can you imagine how that's going to feel? and what that does to people. We have been told already some of the public housing tenants have ended up in hospital due to the stress. This is absolutely shameful and it reflects on all of us, on all of us. So get out, let people know what's going on. Talk to all of the people you know. Bail people up in the street. We can go down to Bay Street and march along the street after this. Let people know what's going on. Thank you. Good okay, first of all, excuse if I seize up a little bit, I've recently had some mouth surgery, so it's a little bit awkward, but I'll try. Uh, my name's Joe Montero. I'm from Fairgo for Pensioners, but I'm also a writer and uh, a blogger involved with a publication called The Pen. My background's as a teacher and economist. I'll say a couple of things. One is, we need to look back in history at the history of public housing. It was not something that was actually handed down by a bunch of politicians. It was actually fought for. It was a long campaign that people fought to get it. Associated with that is that originally it was actually not a campaign for welfare housing. It was a campaign for affordable housing for all working people to provide an alternative than to go to the market and actually pay market prices for a place to live in and have that burden, the burden of a mortgage for the rest of your life. It was supposed to be an alternative. One of the problems is, in more recent years, public housing has been turned into welfare housing. And this brings us a connection with another development. Neoliberalism was brought in originally into Australia in its current form by the Hawke government that came in in 1983. It's continued since then. It's continued to develop. It's actually not new. It's actually a return to the economic policies of the 1800s. We investigate what government said then. They're pretty much what they're saying these days. So that's where we are. The next point I want to say, and it's also connected with that, is, and we see it wider afield, is that people who are defenceless, who do not have a high income, are seeing today, I don't know whether Martin Foley personally does, but certainly the whole ideology around neoliberalism sees people in this position as a resource to exploit. What I mean by this is to exploit as a source of cheap labour. We have, through the changes in Centrelink, people being pushed off benefit, the retirement age is going up, and coupled with that is if you make conditions tough enough for people, they will be desperate enough to take a job that pays virtually nothing. And that, at the end of the line, is what it's all about. So we've actually got a wider battle around this. 
But we need to fight this. We need to connect the issue of public housing with a broader need for affordable housing for all working people in this country. And, yeah, and we need to join it with the fight that we need to mount all of us as a society against the attacks on the most vulnerable people in this society to, to turn them into a source of cheap labour. Thank you. Hey y'all, this is Natalie from Blue King Brown and you're listening to 3CR. Support community radio and your local music scene. Subscribe now. Join the Palm Sunday Walk for Justice and add your voice to the call for change to refugee policy. Demand Australia's political leaders to abandon the current harsh and unjust policies and provide permanent protection for refugees. Stand with people from all over Melbourne. Demand the evacuation of Manus and Nauru and end the cruelty. Meet at the State Library of Victoria on the 25th of March at 1.30pm. Palm Sunday Walk for Justice is a 3CR supporter. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and uh, we've just been listening to a group of people outside Martin Foley's office calling for, uh, demanding that uh, the government actually come and talk to people about this uh, public housing renewal uh, plan that they are basically hatching to give away public assets to private developers. Not happy, not happy. Uh, We're going to move on to a chat I had with uh, David Bradbury, filmmaker extraordinaire. His new film, America and Me, is uh, going to be shown at the Nova on Friday the 16th, 6.30. There's going to be a QA, and a but uh, we got the chance to have a yarn with uh, David ahead of time. Okay, let's talk. Now, uh, this film that you've just made, uh, America and Me, is uh, in your inimitable style. You decided that uh, you were going to look at America, uh, which you call the... Uh, what do you, you call it? The um, the underbelly of the military-industrial complex, yeah, end quote. The dirty work of empire. Tell me about uh, what set it all off. What, what kicked it off? Well, basically, I went to the United States in uh, August of 2016, three months before the U.S. presidential elections. I wasn't going over there with the intention of, of making a, yet another film. I was going over there to try and get some work uh, with Netflix or HBO or public broadcasting because I've just hit uh, a wall after wall with no funding from ABC or SBS here in Australia. And uh, and it, it's pretty depressing to sort of uh, be uh, a filmmaker that uh, at the height of your career and can shoot your own footage and do your own sound and interviews on the run all at the same time. So when I saw the situation wasn't going to open up for me in the States either with any of those above names. I decided that I'd make a documentary about what I was seeing, which was really quite sort of uh, sad to me and um, horrifying that there were so many people now living on the streets of each city in America that I went to. I started off in San Francisco 
which I'd been to 40 years ago, and that's sort of like the enlightened city, the city of the hippies and the flower children of the 60s and the anti-war Vietnam War movement. And there were all these people just sleeping uh, in street uh, corners and in buildings and under bridges and and bus stops and so on. And then when I went to San Diego, uh, my next port of call where I used as a base to come and go to the East Coast over to New York and D.C. and... Uh, and other spots there, it was a similar story. So I basically started getting my camera out and started to make a film about that because I thought, well, I'm going to go insane if I'm seeing all this. And uh, it, just, uh, it just sparked my uh, my social conscience and uh, that America was able to make all these wars since uh, the first Korean War in the 50s and then the Vietnam War and Iraq and Afghanistan. And it can't even look after its own people at home. And what struck me particularly Annie, was that um, a lot of the people I was speaking to on the streets, you know, sort of a good third of them or more were veterans, and they'd been veterans from the, the wars in Vietnam, which um, then morphed into the Iraq and Afghan wars, and uh, and America lords its military while they're able-bodied and in uniform, but as soon as they come home, crippled, broken men after being exposed to the horrors of war and and seeing what war is really like and and suffering from PTSD or their legs blown off or they're, you know, they're sort of crippled psychologically or physically, the American um, government uh, doesn't want to know about them at all because they're going to cost them and uh, they've served their use of empire. And uh, and therefore, I just basically started filming that. And then I, anytime I'd meet some uh, activist or some... Uh, intellectual or philosopher or writer, journalist that had some insight that could uh, give me more insight about this, I uh, interviewed them too. Yeah, yeah, and uh, it's interesting because the film itself is uh, very much like an essay, isn't it? It's a filmic essay running parallel to uh, these things you were observing was the dissonance of the presidential uh, election. Yeah. Yes, and I, I was watching that with fascination, as everyone else was, knowing uh, that uh, it wouldn't matter whether Hillary Clinton was uh, not elected as president or um, what's his name again? Donald yeah, that's Trump. right. It's great because cause you've got <laughs> the king, was, uh, king and it was, queen. It was going to be more, more, more of the same. Yeah, you know? they, and uh, Bernie. Bernie you, Sanders by that stage had been knocked out of the race, and so all hope for Sammy enlightened people on the planet and in the United States had gone out down the drain with, with the, uh, Bernie being uh, cauterized by the, the right wing of the Democratic Party machine, a little bit like sort of um, you know, the Labor Party in Australia is run by the, the right wing and uh, any good progressive lefty um, humanitarian social justice person, environmentalist uh, in the Labor Party ain't going to get anywhere to lead the party either these days. So all hope goes out the window. And uh, so I, I basically determined that um, as I picked up on this place called Standing Rock in my travels of the two months before that, uh, before the election, I picked up that this was an interesting place that I would want to be for the election week. And so I I put my $800 down on the table and bought a ticket to, to North Dakota and, uh, and flew from California uh, to there to basically observe what was Standing Rock and uh, possible inclusion, which it is, 
in my finished film and to see how activists have... Uh, it was, I was really quite excited being there, inspired, actually, because there was a younger generation of younger activists from um, when I first got into activism, which was my uh, late teens, early 20s at university in Australia, and there was a similar generation that had picked up the... Uh, the cudgels were running with it at Standing Rock, as well as my generation there, unified with the first peoples of the United States, which is the North American Indians, and all tribes from all over America come together to support the Sioux Indian tribe, whose land was being desecrated for yet another oil pipeline going through it and bulldozing through 27 sacred sites, gravestones of, of their elders, of their ancients. Yeah, there's a whole lot of language that comes up in your film. Uh, they call themselves earth protectors, don't they? Yeah, that was the term that the um, uh, activists or um, protesters were taking on, on board, and I thought it was very appropriate. Uh, uh, I just went with with, with what they, how they saw themselves, because, as you know, with, with the corporate media, right-wing media, they are uh, anyone that um, dares to challenge neoliberalism or uh, you know, the, the corporate will to make lots of profit and just uh, dismiss people as being anything more than consumers or pawns in the game. Uh, they write off people as being activists or uh, the word sort of um, uh, stirrers and, pro- and and so on like that. And as as opposed to what these people wanted to be seen and are, and that is protecting the earth. They figured it in 2016, having uh, you know, had the Industrial Revolution for the last uh, 200 years, uh, nearly, um, that you know, would come to the end well and truly of, uh, of the age of dinosaurs and fossil fuel technology and energy uh, burning and, and fueling this, this machine. And uh, it was time to sort of uh, to give over to sustainable energies, genuinely sustainable energies, and also the issue basically for them uh, and the Native American Indians whose um, land it was going through was the water and the purity of the water because the pipeline was going underneath the Missouri River and uh, and that Missouri River is the water source for six, for 40 million people plus the, um, the agricultural uh, lands that it, it um, feeds the, the agricultural uh, food landscape uh, downstream of it, that the Missouri flows into the mighty Mississippi and, and so on. And if that water uh, gets polluted because of an oil pipeline breaks, and there are 300 um, oil pipeline breaks a year in North Dakota, which is a state, one of the states where it was originating from and being, which fracked oil, like fracked CSG gas in Australia, was being fracked from uh, in North Dakota near the Canadian border, and then being um, exported, uh, the, the oil pipeline went a thousand miles to join to be piped uh, out of a out of North Carolina to be exported for the oil company to make money. So, as we've seen with the oil with the gas uh, fracking in Australia, there wasn't even wasn't even to provide dinosaur fuel. Locally, for the United States and why it goes into the Middle East to fight its wars of of invasion in, in Iraq and Afghanistan and so on. It was to make money for the oil company at the expense of uh, 
of, of Native Americans and uh, and 40 million Americans or more that relied on it for their oil supply, for their water supply. You know, so, David, one of the uh, strengths of your movie, uh, America and Me, is the fact that you revisit some of the earlier films that caused such a stir. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, it was great going back and uh, revisiting Chile and uh, No Passaran and uh, the other countries because you really got a sense of history. Yeah, I wanted to have that context, Annie, to um, to the, the, where America is at now. Is a lot. There's a lineage of uh, of corporate uh, corporate uh, buccaneering and uh, rape and pillage. Of anywhere on the planet that uh, United States corporates, corporate America has designs upon in order to better make profit, and uh, and I started to see that you know, 35 years ago in Nicaragua and in Guatemala, El Salvador, with the classic exploitation that I stumbled into, and in being a younger filmmaker, going to those countries to make those films you just spoke about then, and also going to Chile, and Chile was. I wanted to incorporate that into America and me to give a context to where we are at now in terms of the, the they're not the chickens that have come home to roost, they're the hawks that have come home to roost in the United States of America now, hence the title America and me, because there are two Americas. There are the, the America north of the Rio Grande that is the United States, and there's the America south of the Rio Grande, and that's the America that the United States and North Americans don't own up to or understand that there are proud Americans south in from Mexico down through Central and South America. And Chile uh, was the, the, the guinea pig for the economic theories of what at the time was called economic rationalism or globalisation. It's now uh, being called neoliberalism. And uh, it was pioneered by a professor of, of economics in the Chicago University called Milton Friedman. And he spread his doctrine to his um, economics undergraduates and masters and doctors in, in economics, uh, saying that basically if we make the rich richer, it's going to trickle down to the middle class and then also go down to the poor of the United States. And not only that, if we export these theories of ours to the rest of the world, including Australia and to Europe and to Asia and South America, it will also be to the benefit of everyone. And it was founded with a great uh, spin doctrine at the time, which continues to this day with Scott Morrison's uh, trip to the United States and saying that if we do what Donald Trump has just uh, done for corporate America, if we slash the, uh, the, the corporate tax rate for the big boys, the corporations, the mining companies from 30% down to 20%, then it's going to flow through to the workers' wages, and that's what Scott Morrison at the moment is is espousing why we should cut the corporate tax rate for corporate Australians and the multinationals here who don't pay tax uh, most of the time anyway, or certainly not at the levels at which they should pay it. And, uh, and it's poor old Australian workers and middle class, and every time we buy you know something at the grocery store or the supermarket or or you know, get our car serviced or whatever, we're paying the GST tax there that the big boys and the big end of town aren't paying. So now they're trying to have this race to the bottom where countries are competing for com- uh, the big companies to stay in there on the basis that we'll give you a, a corporate uh, tax rate of only 
uh, next 15%, then it'll be down to 10%. It's a race to the bottom, all under the guise that it'll, it'll have a trickle-down effect. And so I made America and me to expose what is happening in terms of at home where the trickle-down effect didn't uh, help anyone, uh, the, the poor and the middle class. In fact, it threw so many more people out onto the streets now because they just can't keep up with... Um, the situation of, um, of of what it takes to be able to get to rent an apartment or pay off their mortgage when the GFC crisis happened in 2008, and and Obama bailed out the banks and Wall Street, uh, uh, um, Goldman Sachs, which our Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull was the head of Goldman Sachs at the time. If you're hearing me talking, you're starting to see a pattern that's developed yeah, here. Yeah, that's Annie, exactly right. In terms of, uh, of the the of the Snakes and mirrors the um, the snake the well snake well they charmers that, that yeah. are running the world now. And well, they threw the everybody else to the wall. Wall They threw everybody else to the wall. The, another thing that yeah. was uh, uh, is a real strength in your film and in all your films is the, the way you frame things, the way you allow the camera to stay on people's faces so that you actually get an idea of the type of person they are. Uh, you also got got some wonderful interviews from people. Yeah, I think that um, that's been a evolved uh, style of mine over the last forty years of being a journalist and a, a filmmaker. That um, I, I I hope I'm not being arrogant and saying that. No, I don't think I, so at all. I seem to have seem to have uh, been able to uh, humble myself genuinely when. I'm in a situation of interviewing people that I really identify with. I I hope, and I, obviously because they 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 tell me their 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 secrets and they tell me their um uh, their, their what life and struggle is like, even though they're proud people, the homeless people yeah. I interviewed in the states and the veterans that I really identified with in making America and me, uh, and, and it's something that um, I'm really um, humbled at the same time quietly proud that I haven't been able to develop that uh, ability to go in cold and get people to have a confidence to tell me to my camera straight off as a stranger that's walked into their lives suddenly off the street and to to be able to get that uh, rapport and and honesty happening. Uh, Tell me, what's the equipment you use? I'm using a, um, a Canon C100 camera and a radio mic I you know because in order to get good sound I often uh, ask people now that I've just met do you mind if I put this radio mic on you because there's a bit of noise in the street here with the buses and uh, and, and passing traffic and so on and 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 they usually let me do that and uh, I've got another directional mic on the camera which is um got the fluffy on it if there's wind noise around it's very directional so it it's sort of uh, it's a second backup in case um you know, one of the two mics doesn't work. So, um, is that, that a road? Is equally important to me as pictures. Is that a road uh, mic, the one that you've got on attached? It's a Senken mic. Yeah, uh, it's a Sennheiser radio mic that I use. Yeah, right. And if you're getting, if you're getting sexy and talking about uh, uh, yours and mine here, Annie, being a sound. Uh, I'm just interested in with, uh, yeah the radio. That's how I started out. Was in radio at the ABC 40 years ago, and yeah. uh, it, it taught me early up to appreciate the uh, that sound is just as important as picture. A lot of young filmmakers are 
new wannabes uh, make that mistake. They think if they just get good pitches that uh, that will that will tell the story, and it doesn't. Because um, I've been through the very strong pain early in my career of discovering that you know, good pitches without good sound just isn't going to hack it. No, that's right. Uh, and it's uh, has there been a lot of change over the years? Because you've been making films for 40 years. And, uh, I mean, I was going to say, some of that earlier footage, it really threw people back. The way you... I, I was so impressed uh, with the immediacy of the shots and the people and all the rest of it that you took. But it must have been a lot harder with the equipment you had in those days. Uh, well, it was, you know, initially it was a Nagra tape recorder and... Uh, I borrowed Neil Davis's um, Nagra when I filmed the interviews with him. Oh, I used a, 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 a cameraman to do that because I was too scared. The cost of 16mm was uh, horrendous in those days. And uh, I used the Nagra because I was uh, trained, as I said, a radio broadcaster at the ABC and interviewer uh, with uh, news. And, um, and, and then sort of married it together clumsily in the edit it was much more complicated and, and as you say heavier in those days now the lightness of the equipment and the fact that you can run an interview for a couple of hours if you want to yeah. uh, uh, allows that sort of um, uh, allows that ease of access and you're not going grey overnight I'm already grey because of the cost in my late 20s and early 30s of, of, of shooting 10 minutes of 16mm film and sound, that, um, particularly if you're shooting in a Latin American yeah. context where I didn't even understand Spanish at all and just have to hope they're saying something good for, you know, the thousands of dollars that are going through your camera in, a, in, a, in one hour of interview, you know. So that was it. But I'd just like to um, segue from that into the, the soundtrack, the music of yeah, uh, that's America right. and me, because to acknowledge the contribution of musician born uh, David Lewis, who um, grew up in Melbourne and, uh, and played the trumpet in the, um, in the cadets at high school on Anzac Day. And he, um, I think 30-odd years ago, moved over to Paris because he fell in love with his wife, Belle, and, um, and they formed the, the, the group Paris Combo. And for about the last three films, David has uh, worked um, tirelessly um, on the music track, and when I could pay him the, the, um, the for the music track of the crater, my film, the last one that I made for the ABC four years ago or something, he did a great soundtrack on that and on America and Me uh, through Skype sessions back and forth. He was going to bed as I was waking up in the morning and uh, listening to the music he sent over to me by Dropbox, and and then we'd send him another cut and he'd improve upon that or take on board our notes and feedback as a cut change. He, for nothing, for nothing, provided a fantastic uh, music soundtrack to America and Me, um, which kind of is a combination of being influenced by the inventor's film Paris, Texas, with a slide steel guitar and other session missions, musicians he brought into his studio in, in Paris because I, I didn't have any funding for this film, and so I was borrowing favours from people like David and my editor, Walter McIntosh, who was in Sydney whenever he could come up to work at Mates Rates and uh, in, in Mullumbimby, where I live. He'd come up and, uh, and do the sound, do the editing on it there. And it was a, a wonderful outpouring of generosity of technicians 
that were able to help me get over the line without a penny of uh, taxpayer money, much as I would have loved to have had it, but I just couldn't get to, to make America and me. So we said, stuff them. We're going to make this film and get it out there. It's not going to sit in the archives and grow the dust until I cark it. We're going to make this film and we'll get it out. And so we did. And let, now let's get to the pointing end. You're coming to Melbourne to uh, show it at Nova on March the 16th and you're going to do a Q&A. Yeah, this is uh, coming Friday night. And, um, yeah, I'm still uh, trying to organise a special guest that we've advertised. I've tried a few Celebs, Paul Kelly, the musician, and Deborah Conway, they're busy and uh, or not available. And Tim Costello, the uh, wonderful World Vision anti-gambling uh, lobbyist and, uh, and so on. Julian Bernstein will be in Adelaide for the Adelaide Festival. So I'm happy I can pull a rabbit out of the hat to uh, have uh, come along to introduce the film and to me and me on, on this Friday night. And uh, it'll be great to sort of, because I've always regarded Melbourne as being the centre of activism and social justice. And though I'm a Sydney boy, before I pulled up stakes and moved to the bush in northern New South Wales, I've always acknowledged and, and loved Melbourne for its activism and the fact that uh, you keep on keeping on in that. In today's world, it's uh, about you know, respect for refugees and uh, and uh, and multicultural. Melbourne and uh, you know, the right wing neo Nazis with their right their marches and so on and uh, and so I'll be good. I really hope that Melbourne does because it's not easy to get an, a, a, a social activist or anti-war uh, environmental based documentary onto onto the big screen and it's and it's really hard to bring people together to do that. Sure, people can look at it uh, later on on their phones or their laptops, maybe. But I think there's a real power, there's a real energy when you bring 100 people uh, together or 50 people together in the darkness and you have the filmmaker there as an activist filmmaker to discuss the issues afterwards. It's empowering rather than looking at then you sort of say, after you've looked at it on your, on your phone or on your laptop or iPad, okay, so what are we going to do tonight, darling? Where we go for dinner at St Kilda or... Or hmm. Brunswick, or what? You know. Hmm. Whereas you just, I think more than ever, we have to have a continuation of uh, rage against the machine, and to talk and 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 um, and strategize about where we have to take on the neoliberalists and uh, their bum boys that are doing it in Canberra, uh, in order to sort of uh, come up with ways to empower ourselves again, and to do what I've done ever since the. Uh, the late 60s and in my sort of uh, career as a filmmaker activist to, um, to really not to light a candle around the curse of darkness. So 16th of March, 6.30 at Nova. Thanks very much for talking to me. Thanks very much, Annie, for having me on your show yet again. As it wasn't for you know, community radio, 3CR, and other uh, community radios around Australia and alternative news media outlets, uh, social media, there'd be no hope for filmmakers like me to get word out that we're having a screening. So I really acknowledge what you do, Annie, and having me on your program over the years as well. Thanks. Hi, this is Katie from Little Birdie, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM. We need your help to support public radio and your local music scene. 
A weak solidarity bricky team listener when last week we reported new hayseed and sheepshit party homophobe, a uh, sorry, supremo Michael McCaw make the rich richer, couldn't wait to make it clear, I'm not barnacle. First thing he said, very sensible. Well, maintaining the theme this week, Barnacle himself, showing his respect for his new love at the same time, declaring the dear little baby also might not be Barnacle. Barnacle's contribution to International Women's Day. Betty's partner felt great. Not that he challenged for the Feminist Solidarity of the Week award, which, as we also reported last week, went to Michaelia Kosh, the workers, in a walkover. Although Lord Rupert of Sin columnist Alice Costa, real name, put in a strong bid for the title, but realistically was unable to compete with Michaelia. Alice made her bid by getting stuck into the ABC for celebrating IWD with an All Women Presenters Day, which it started last year, something this station has been doing for years. The ABC man band will swoop back on International Women's Day like the flight of the vengeful Valkyries. Alice displayed her literary skills. Yes, sirree, or should that be ma'am, Artie will controversially bench most of its high-profile male TV and radio hosts for 24 hours to promote gender equality. Hold up, sounds more like gender inequality. And on and on she went. Nice try, Alice, and certainly a fine example of feminist solidarity, but, well, try again next year. But isn't, yes, the real, should that be, ma'am, so clever, so brilliant, it had me in stitches. On the positive side, the dangerous perception that IWD celebrates working women, based on nothing more historically substantial than its genesis from the struggles of working women, is being eroded by the really important women who make a major contribution to this society by generating wealth and jobs, seizing the day for themselves. Why? The True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review inserted a women in business lift out to celebrate. The Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin carried a double-page ad offering mentoring by one of True Blue Aussie's most inspiring women, including the Minister for Going Overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, Julie Bashup, the workers. She certainly inspires me. <laughs> no, no, I won't go there. Smiling at us inspiringly, presumably mentoring women in the gentle art of ripping surplus value off workers, and Chloe Shorten Ambition took the Socialist Party position in a speech to a big funds management investment company calling for more women in company boardrooms, other than bringing in the tea and biscuit trolley, presumably. So let's hope in a short while IWD will be known as International Business Women's Profits Day and obviate the threat from evil women workers preaching subversion. Like this Monday, still called Labor Day brackets Vic and SA in most calendars and therein lies its only connection to evil, lazy, avaricious workers and evil unions. Thankfully, providing a weekend of bread and circuses, don't mention Labor, let's call it Mumba, bread and circuses courtesy of the caring business class who provide wholesome entertainment like people with wingy thingies leaping into the era and allowing, providing the opportunity for, the common folk to cheer the floats of the great corporates, while 
Remember when it was Labor Day and the march consisted of huge union floats and large union banners and worker demands? Floats of the great corporates, which are most definitely not political. But Labor movement floats or banners are banned on Labor Day, sorry, Moomba Day, because they are most definitely political. Compared to... International Women's Day still has a fair way to go before working women are eliminated altogether, but isn't it encouraging that the filthy rich, the great corporates, so care about women, and they believe unflinchingly in equal pay? Well, they have to, given women won equal pay in 1972, as we've mentioned regularly, so it hasn't been an issue for 50-plus years. I've no idea why women keep carrying on about it. You don't hear men making a fuss over the issue. We the Caring Employers Chorused, believe absolutely in equal pay. Women doing menial work should all be paid the same menial pay. Sadly for them, for they know it's a problem, wages for women and men have fallen in real terms for the past four years. The answer, as we all know, is so simple. Remove all taxes on the filthy rich and increase their profits. The record profits they've been earning simply haven't been record enough for the workers who make a small insignificant contribution to those profits like 100% to warrant a wage rise from their lazy avaricious labours. Caring employers and the economic gurus who inform us wisely day after day what's good for us know that menial pay is better than no pay at all, better than bludging on the public purse. Like those textile outworkers who admittedly receive menial pay, but they can make a nice little earner if they're prepared to work, say, a 100 to 120 hour week and avoid injury, which would be their own fault, which is why they're not covered for that injury. Why, for those sort of friendly hours, they can almost make a living wage. Which is why caring employers are so upset that the Fair Work No Longer Work Choices Just Looks Like It Con Mission has approved this national disaster, this amalgamation between the textile evil union, the maritime evil evil union, and the building and construction evil 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 union. So threatening to national security, caring employers in the resource industry have urged big supremo Malcolm Tunner Bull and the team to amend the legislation which allowed the amalgamation to not allow the amalgamation, split infinitive. The True Blue Aussie Mines and Metals Profits Association's Workplace Relations Director Amanda Mancini, real name again, putting in her IWD Week bid for Feminist Solidarity of the Week award, said, There is a pathway for the government to act in the national interest. Showing Amanda, despite her concern for those outworker slaves, is prepared to put the national interest first. If only there were more like her. Uh, but Amanda, the sundry chambers of profits always claim they oppose retrospective legislation. And we do, uh, when it applies to us, because that would be against the national interest. Uh, but it's okay when it applies to others like workers and unions. It's essential in the national interest. The national interest is our only interest. By the way, where are you from again? Um, 3CR? Oh, listener, the reaction was so frightening, I dare not describe it. Quick, quick, over here, smelling salts, over here, quick, quick. My God, what caused that? I, I hope she comes round. 
Apart from seeking retrospective legislation, the resource caring employers union is also taking legal action to stop its workers union making its own decisions. Meanwhile, the latest Real Estate Profits Institute of True Blue Aussie Housing Affordability Study Good news. Housing affordability in Sydney is improving. Well, the average house price up there is a mere one point something million, so any wonder the homeless of Sydney are dancing in their gutters. Dare we suggest the small gap, say one point something million between the homeless and housing affordability, is about as wide as the gap between the Real Estate Profits Institute and reality? Unlike poor Amanda, after watching a commercial telly report the other night, I feel a lot more secure. And if you saw it, listener, we feel a lot more secure. Thanks to Lord Rupert of Wapping and his Wapping sin in the commercial telly in-depth reports, we know our society is swamped with violence, thuggery, fear, namby-pamby judges and magistrates who impose weak-kneed sentences. OK, OK, after wading through page after page of crime running riot and perpetrators getting away with patently inadequate sentences and the need for even more prisons, maybe bring back the stocks, the lash, the noose, there was this small single column report buried away in a recent whopping sin that crime rates, including youth crime rates, had fallen and indeed have been falling for years. Fallen can't be true, but this item was so buried back in the book that clearly it is of no significance anyway. So the reassuring news, we're getting 800 new, oh, sorry, a girls and boys in blue, and the report showed them training in how to protect us, make us feel more secure, learning how to bash us with battens, hit us with potentially lethal tasers, spray us with potentially lethal capsicum. They didn't show them learning how to shoot us or how to put the nail in the battens or sharpen their boots, but enough for me and hopefully you, listener, to sit back and breathe a sigh of relief and exhale. That bashing and firing and spraying makes me feel so secure. And State Big Supremo, the pejorative Dan, said all these heavily armed giant mines turned loose on our streets was the only way to make us feel more secure. Imagine what we'd cop or how many of them if crime rates were not going down. The Caring Business Class Party Supremo and would-be Big State Supremo Matthew, he's our business class guy, wasn't happy. He said the extra cop should have been introduced three years ago. Uh, that's just after your lot lost government, Matthew. Exactly. Finally, US of the UN of the US of the world, Big Supremo, Man of Steel, tariffs, Donald Trample the Poor, praised True Blawazi as a true friend. A true friend jumps when we say jump, which makes True Blawazi a very, very true friend. Good morning. Three CR is participating in an international broadcasting event. From the 11th to the 15th of March, to commemorate the Fukushima nuclear plant accident, I, Jim Petit, invite you to be a part of an international broadcast happening. This is a musical prayer for the effects of the nuclear heritage on our past and present lives based on the requiem I've recorded with the Bratislava Symphony Orchestra. After listening to the piece, I invite you to take a picture of your eyes to contribute to the visual and sound artwork in progress. 
I look forward to your contribution. Tune in to 3CR, 5pm Sunday the 11th of March and 8.30pm Wednesday 14th of March. Post-Nuclear Requiem. Hi, I'm Stuart. Hi, I'm Marita. We are the Orb Weavers, and you're listening to 3CR, 855 AM on digital radio. And streaming at 3cr.org.au. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, and as promised, I've got some stuff from the International Women's Day March. Uh, It's a rollicking piece, so we might... Press on. Um, I'll pay you this piece. My name's Tess. I'm from the Rail Train Bus Union. I'm also a member. Yeah. I'm also a member of the International Women's Day Collective who've organised this demonstration today. I would like to begin this rally the way that we begin all of our demonstrations and that is to make an acknowledgement of country. On behalf of the IWD Collective, I'd like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We'd also like to pay our respects to their elders and their leaders, past, present and emerging today. And of course, we want to welcome and thank any Indigenous comrades here with us today. It's important, I think, to acknowledge that this land was never ceded, that this here where we're standing is stolen land, land that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. And we stand in solidarity with Indigenous peoples and their struggle against ongoing genocide and racism in this country. When I think about injustice around the world or injustice here, it's hard to go past the the horrible uh, situation that's faced by Indigenous women. In particular, we've recently seen the rates of Indigenous women who are incarcerated skyrocketing. And for the people who are the family of Ms. Jew, an Indigenous woman who was killed, who died in state custody, all for unpaid parking fines. There has been no justice for Miss Drew or her family, and this is an outrage. I think it's important that we understand that this struggle against racism is an ongoing one. And I'm gonna, um, I will be introducing our first speaker, who is an Indigenous activist, shortly. But I wanted to say a little bit more about this demonstration first. So welcome to International Working Women's Day. Amazing to see so many people out here today, so many different kinds of people of all genders, trans activists, non-binary folk, women, men, workers and unions from all industries, whether it be blue collar, white collar, pink collar, red collar, no collar. I've got people here from all different national, ethnic and religious backgrounds. And we've got, of course, people here uh, disabled activists here, who I think it's particularly Yay. important that they've made the effort to be here today. And we're all and we're all standing here today, shoulder to shoulder, for the same. 
same reason. We're here to fight sexism. I think this is important. It's important what we're doing here and what the trade union movement has been doing all week long. Because this is a day to celebrate our achievements, but to fight for more. This is not a day for corporate champagne brunches. This is not a day to celebrate Gina Reinhart or her daughters who just made the Billionaire's Club. This isn't to celebrate the new range of Barbies that got launched today. This is about organising and fighting for a fairer world. In particular, we'd like to dedicate our demonstration to a real legend of our movement, Selva Deprano. Selva passed away about five weeks ago now, on the 21st of February. She became famous in, in 1969 when she trained herself to a Commonwealth building to protest unequal pay. And of course, Zelda's actions didn't just happen by herself or on her own. It happened amongst a backdrop of mass radical trade union activism that was happening at the time. And so we pay tribute not just to Zelda, but to the whole movement and the history of our movement. And it'll surprise none of you that there is still a hell of a lot for us to fight for today. Disgracefully, the gender pay gap in Australia is actually getting worse. It's 15.3% difference, and if you go into the private sector, it goes up to 22.4% difference. Every year, on average, women are earning $27,000 a year less than their male counterparts. I was disgusted to learn uh, at a Rawfest event last night that for trans women, only 5% of trans women stay in their jobs through their transition process. This, this is a totally unacceptable state of affairs for our trans sisters. In Tasmania, people might have seen that the only abortion clinic in that state has been closed down. This is for, for the force, poor women, to no longer have access to abortion. Like, this is a move towards the backyard. The government is offering subsidies for travel. But we know that that isn't going to cut it, that that's going to be totally inadequate. And women shouldn't have to be scrambling for this anyway. I can't imagine what it would be like to have to travel without your support network while experiencing the, the, the emotional and physical trauma of a late-term abortion. I think this is a reminder about how far we still have to go on abortion reform in this country. Abortion services should be provided free of cost at any point in a pregnancy, on demand, and they need to be accessible. And we cannot have women having to put up with the whims of the private sector on this question. It's not good enough. So we have this and a hell of a lot more to fight for and so many wonderful speakers here to talk about that fight. Jack is a disability and queer rights activist, feminist and writer. Today she'll bring LGBTQI disability rights into focus and expand on the conversation. So when we're talking about 
women's rights, we don't just mean straight, able-bodied, cis, white women. Jack is representative of a kind of feminism that wants to bring those of us on the margins to the centre and listen and learn and advocate for change. Thank you for being with us here, Jack. to be intersectional and inclusive, we have to provide all kinds of access for everybody. It's great that I'm speaking here today, but why isn't there Auslan interpreting for deaf and hard of hearing people at this event? We need to do better. People need to start thinking about different kinds of access from the initial stages of event planning. I want access as a wheelchair user to all kinds of transport to see trains and trams made accessible, to be able to get into buildings, public and private, to have meaningful employment. Just 52% of women with disabilities live on or below the poverty line in this country, and that is not acceptable. I want us all to have respectful and loving relationships. And while we address violence against women as a nation, we must not forget disabled women. For we are assaulted and raped and abused at least two times greater than cisgendered women without disabilities. 90%, 90% of women with intellectual disabilities have been sexually abused. And two-thirds two of that abuse occurs before they reach the age of 18 years. Much of this violence is perpetrated by those closest to us, by our family members, our support workers, or our partners. I want to see disability included as an aspect of diversity, as something you can be proud of. Disabled people are told in a myriad of ways that we have lesser value, from the built environment which continues to exclude us, to people's ideas about disability. Disability as a terrible tragedy, or conversely, that we are objects of inspiration. But when I was 19, I discovered this radical idea that changed my life, and that was the social model of disability. It says that a person's impairment is not the problem, that the problem lies within a society that has failed to include people with different bodies and minds. So, all these All these stairs, all these stairs everywhere, they're the problem. And people's stairs that I get all the time from strangers, they're the issue that needs to be addressed. And we need to get rid of these barriers to create actual meaningful change and access. I want to see Sabinism address all of the concerns of disability Sabinism and engage in nuanced conversations around difficult and contentious issues like the widespread practice of disability eugenics. 90% of fetuses diagnosed with Down syndrome are aborted. Now, I am pro-choice, but the choices that we make are influenced by the society that we live in and the views people hold about people with disabilities and the lack of services for us. I want to see the forced sterilization of women and girls with disabilities that still continues in this country today to be addressed for what it is, a violation of human rights. 
feminism gives space to the ways in which disability objectification is different to sexual objectification, which non-disabled women are subject to. So while, quite rightly, women ask to stop being viewed as sex objects, disabled women are not viewed as desirable at all. My partner is routinely presumed to be my carer or my sister, even though we look nothing alike, because we couldn't possibly be together. And when we make it clear that we are, she is assumed to be a saint for just being with me. LGBTIQ people with disabilities have our LGBTIQ identities rendered invisible by our disabilities. We are continually presumed not to possess sexual agency or desire. We are assumed to be cisgender and our gender identity or sexual expression is policed by support workers and family. In the face of all this though, many of us continue to fight and challenge and activate for change. We continue to practice our pride and our resilience I want a feminism that is intersectional and accessible, and I want yours to be too. Thank you. That there's a growing pay gap in this country. Much of this is to do with the lack of respect and lack of decent wages that's given to women in so-called feminised industries. Supposedly, we're just naturally caring. So why should we be paid a living wage for things like health care and education? Shamefully, our early childhood educators are paid as little as $21 an hour. Many of them have to live on half the national average wage and our federal government is refusing to pay up to properly fund childcare services, to give the workers the wages they deserve, to give working families the service and support they need. It's time to pay up. And I'm thrilled to welcome to the stage a contingent of powerful union women from United Voice who are planning a walk-off in protest of their crummy conditions on the 27th of March. And I think we all want to get behind that. And we're going to hear in particular uh, from one uh, early childhood educator and union activist, Kylie Gray. Thanks, comrades. Thank you. Um, so firstly, I too would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Um, so I am a proud and passionate early childhood educator and union activist. Uh, and I'm here today to talk to you all about the Big Steps campaign. So I know part of the information was given then, but how many of you really know about the Big Steps campaign and our fight for equal pay? Show of hands. Okay, not too bad, but obviously we need to get educating a bit more. Um, okay, so as it was said, uh, educators earn a li as little as $21 an hour. Uh, this equates to roughly around half of the national wage, average wage. So in this day and age, $21 an hour is outrageous for the professional job that we do um, in this state and across the country. 
and the Big Steps campaign is fighting to fit this pay wage inequality. Around 97% of educators in this country are female and early childhood education has historically been seen as women's work because of the caring nature of our role. Educators do more than just care and nurture young children. We assist their learning and development. We plan and document and guide the first five years of their life where 90% of a person's brain development occurs. We don't just put out Play-Doh because it feels good. There is actually thought behind everything that we do. The blocks are there to help with numeracy, literacy. There is thought and intentional teaching behind everything that we do. Uh, as we know, these years are critical to their future learning and when a government values educators as professionals that we are, they are actually also valuing the children of this country as well and it's a shame they haven't done so already. For too long, educators have tried to survive on low wages, wondered if they could keep working in the career they're studied for. Myself, I have come across this dilemma um, recently separated and now a single mother, that is something I've had to think about, whether I continue in a career that I've studied for, wondering if I can afford a house to support my family, wondering if I can afford the day-to-day -day bills. I shouldn't have to afford, have to think about these sort of things in 2018. Equal pay should be a given. So educators everywhere have had enough of the government's inaction for our sector and that's why on March 27th we are walking off the job. This will be the last... This will be the largest action in the history of early childhood education across this country. So already 30 to 40 centres in Victoria are closing their doors on March 27th. But as educators... We know we cannot do this without the support of parents and community. And that's why we're asking parents to commit to keeping their children at home on Tuesday the 27th of March. Now we understand that we are asking a lot, but we also know that parents know the value of having well-paid, stable and professional early childhood sector is only going to improve the outcome for this country and their children. So I have an ask for you all. Can everyone take out their phones and head out to uh, head off to on Safari or Google, Android, whatever it is that you've got, um, and head to www.bigwalkoff.com.au and register your support for our campaign. And then once you've registered, share it, get it trending, get it out there. So that again is www.bigwalkoff.com.au. Okay. If you're not a parent, we still need your support. You can support us by attending our rally that will be held that afternoon at 4pm at Fed Square and also by sharing on social media on the 27th with the hashtag BigWalkoff. Because I know that with the support of parents and the wider community like you guys, 
then we can make the government fund the equal pay that we know that educators deserve. So just before I finish, I too want to give a shout out to Zelda Soprano. She was an amazing trailblazer who, as we heard, had chained herself to the Commonwealth Building in 1969 to fight pay, pay inequality. But not only that, she advocated her whole life for women's rights. And upon hearing about the Big Step campaign a couple of years ago, reached out to educators and told, congratulated on us on our fight and urged us to never give up. So Zelda, we will never get it, give up. Okay, and finally, it wouldn't be a rally without a chance. So when I say equal pay, you say right now. Equal pay. 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 Well, we've come to the end of the show, Solidarity Breakfast, this morning on 3CR. We, uh, had a, we've just been listening to some sounds of uh, International Women's Day March, uh, held on March the 8th, of course, on Thursday. Uh, earlier in the program, we were outside Martin Foley's office uh, with the uh, public housing campaigners, uh, on uh, after that, we talked to David Bradbury about his new film, uh, America and Me. Don't forget that it's on down at the Nova on Friday, March the 16th at 6.30. And there will be a Q&A with the uh, filmmaker. So uh, he is actually, I'd have to say, a living legend. Coming up next is... Uh, Asia Pacific Currents, and we're going to go out with a loud and noisy rebel girl, Bikini Kill. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.